Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets, where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. My name is Ted Richards. In the last episode, we heard from mining and resources analyst Sam Catalano as we zoomed in on the lithium sector. This time, we're going to take a step back from a specific industry and have a look at the latest going on in global markets and how it may or may not be impacting investment portfolios. I'm joined once again by Wilson's Head of Investment Strategy, David Cassidy. David, welcome back to the Invested Best podcast. Great to be here, Ted. At the time of recording, it's Wednesday, the 31st of May. For those that may have missed it, David, what's the latest with the US debt ceiling? Well, Ted, it looks like a deal has been reached in principle over the, over the weekend with uh, uh, Republican House Leader McCarthy and President Biden. So that will go to both houses to, to a vote now. There's still a little bit of skittishness around uh, any potential hiccups in terms of those votes. Uh, but I think the general expectation is the deal will get passed uh, and we'll move on, focus back on fundamentals. But um, still a little bit of nervousness over the next few days. Okay, that's interesting. And before we move on from US politics, do you think we'll have a Biden-Trump rematch next year? That's certainly what the polls are suggesting. Um, not a certainty, but that would be, I think, the most likely outcome. In some ways, Trump can virtually hold the Republican Party to ransom here because if he threatens to run as an independent, he'd uh, soak up at least 20 25% of the vote. So the Republicans would have absolutely no chance if he runs uh, as an independent. I think he's still an outside chance if he is the candidate, but but I think that's going to be the most likely scenario. Well, that's a fair bit off. So it's certainly going to be a, a fascinating 18 months with all the, the different ways that that can play out. David, shifting gears for a moment, consumer confidence is, is low right now. How does consumer confidence in Australia and also the US compare to other points in time? Yeah, Ted, I think, as you said, confidence is depressed, both here and in the US. And interestingly, as we pointed out in our piece last week, uh, Australian confidence is actually, prime facie, weaker than US confidence in terms of what the surveys are saying. I think that's, you know, in part a function of uh, the sensitivity to interest rates in, in terms of Australian households. It matters in the US, but probably not as much as... as it does here. So from that perspective, yeah, confidence is depressed, but spending uh, is mixed. But actually, as we pointed out in the note, not too bad right at the moment in terms of what we've been seeing in, in the recent months. 
And for those that missed that note, I'll, I'll put that piece of research in the episode show notes. So have a look there for that link if you missed it. David, despite this low confidence that's playing out in Australia, we're seeing early signs that the property prices in Australia are actually moving positive now. So is this an indicator that sentiment is improving or is that due to other factors? I think there are a few other factors at play there. I think important driver of what's going on in property prices more recently in terms of some of this um, newfound buoyancy is the migration story. So I think you've got that buyer coming back into the market who's been absent for, for some time. So I think that's in part what's going on with this uptick in, in, in prices. Possibly there's some emerging view that even though interest rates are up a long way, we are at or very close to the peak in rates. So probably the uncertainty around the interest rate environment is diminishing. So possibly that's also a driver. And also I think the fact that probably the prices did, did fall quite materially, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne over the last 12 months, you know, double digit falls in a lot of cases. So possibly some, dare I say it, value coming back into the market. But as a Sydney sider, it's always you know, hard to say there's, there's value in the market. So this, but I think that migration story is a probably the major driver in terms of what's gone on recently in terms of this uptick. David, you mentioned migration numbers there a couple of times. Just for, for listeners' benefits, how, how much has migration numbers increased from what uh, historically we've had in Australia? Yeah, certainly if you look at the 12-month the trend in terms of the, the recent 12 months or the 12-month projection, they're way above long-term averages in terms of the, the migration flows. You do have to remember that we went through a period during the pandemic when there was very little in the way of net migration. So it really depends how you cut the numbers in terms of just how much migration we've seen in the Australian economy in recent times. But in terms of the here and now, very strong flows at a time when, in particular, the rental markets are already very, very tight. So that's only adding to that pressure. And also it's at a time when, and we just got some numbers out this week, uh, building activity looks you know, very depressed. So it's not great news for renters. Um, as I said previously, it's having a little bit of an impact, I think, on house prices now in terms of people who want to own a house. So certainly there's uh, pressure points in the economy off the back of these strong migration flows, but to some extent it is a, is a catch-up story in terms of the lack of migration we saw through 2021 and the early parts of 22. Okay, that's property. Let's now have a look at equities. Some tech stocks, in particular any that can say they're part of this AI thematic, well, they've, they've jumped in value a lot. Dave, what's your thoughts on these valuations? Is it approaching bubble territory? Yeah, it has been an interesting year for the US stock market, and there's been a lot of commentary around how narrow the rally has been. So the S&P's had a pretty good start to 2023, um, and indeed, you know, a good Sort of nine months now off those October lows, uh, the, the rally has been getting increasingly narrow in terms of the number of stocks leading the, the, the market up, um, which is normally a cautionary sign. It is very centred, as you say, on the, the mega cap tech stocks, the Magnificent Seven or the Magnificent Eight, those, those very large uh, mega cap US tech stocks. Uh, I think it started off earlier this year with surprisingly strong Q1 uh, results. Uh, from the tech names. More recently, it's sort of more about this AI enthusiasm or optimism, in particular, probably the poster child for the, the, 
the AI, AI opportunities uh, NVIDIA, uh, up around 140% this year, and that's a very big company, closing in on a you know, trillion dollar US market cap. So when you look at that share price chart, it's basically gone parabolic. So just a simplistic interpretation of that is there's, there's a bit of froth in there. I would say, though, that the, the thing that really got the market excited about NVIDIA recently was the earnings result. There was genuine upgrades off the back of the, the, the AI. So it's just not all froth and, and bubble. When you look at the, some of the other stocks like your Microsofts, Alphabets, Meta, um, they've also had strong rallies, but nowhere as, as strong as NVIDIA. Is AI overdone? Maybe a little bit in the short term, but I think it is a, a, a genuinely transform, transformative technology. So I think what the market is doing is, as often the case, there is a logic behind what it's doing. Maybe it's factored in too much too soon. When I look at the S&P more, more, more generally, um, as I said, you know the rally has been quite narrow recently. So the S&P is sort of sitting halfway between the October lows of last year and the, the highs of late 21. So the, the S&P 500 overall doesn't look that stretched to me. Maybe that there's some excess of optimism on AI, albeit, you know, I think it is already leading to real earnings momentum. So from that perspective, I don't think it's pure speculation. Okay, fascinating. Dave, let's go back to the macro environment. Right now, would you rather be Philip Lowe, the governor of the RBA, or Jerome Powell, the chair of the Fed? So considering the economy and the levers that each leader is working with in this economy, who do you think has the harder job right now? I'd rather be neither, personally. I think they've both got, both got pretty difficult jobs. Cutting through the sort of the noise of, you know, the, the, the press and uh, that sort of thing, I think in terms of the fundamentals of the job, probably Powell has the tougher job in that the advantage Lowe has, which may be a sort of a double-edged sword, is that, as I said, said earlier, the Australian household is very sensitive to that policy rate that Lowe controls. Um, so that's good and bad, but I think that's... that's so for good. those not aware of how the US mortgage market works? Yeah, the, the US mortgage market is largely a fixed rate mortgage market. And we've had an element of fixed rate lending in our market, particularly in sort of 2021, when fixed rates were very low. Uh, but the US market for a very long time has been really a 15 to 30 year fixed rate market. So that means that Powell's got to work even harder in terms of you've only really got control of that uh, short-term policy rate. So it doesn't really have that much impact on long-term interest rates a little bit in terms of expectations for where that cash rate's going to be over the long term. But um, he doesn't have much control over the, the mortgage market. Therefore, that's, I think, in part why the Fed has taken rates up to just over 5%, uh, whereas the RBA is sitting there at 3.85. It, it's much tougher to, to rein in the US economy. He can control things like the interest rate on car loans, student loans, personal loans, credit card loans to some extent. Well, they're always very high. Um, but he hasn't, hasn't got much control over the mortgage market or long-term corporate borrowing, which is often, you know, sort of five-year fixed. So he's got a sort of a tougher job. He's got to, in some ways, take that short rate to scary levels uh, in terms of where that has gone and where it might be going, whereas Lowe's probably got a lot more potency in terms of what, what he's controlling. So that's why I think it's harder for Powell to judge whether he's over-egged the, the, the pudding on that short rate. And correct me if I'm wrong, Australia has significantly more debt than it... Certainly than a lot more household debt. Yeah. They're in worse shape in terms of government debt, but we, we do have a much uh, more leveraged household sector, which is a risk, but it does mean, I think, that Lowe does get more bang for his buck 
in terms of his, his, his policy tightening. That's why he, I think he's being a lot more cautious in tightening rates. So wrapping that comparison up, who do you think right now has more of a recession risk? I, I think it is the US. Um, I don't think a US recession is a certainty, but I do think um, that that interest rate tightening has certainly appeared to cause stresses in the US banking sector. You've you know, obviously been following the, the regional bank pressures. So there's been the, the comment from a few commentators that cracks are appearing in, in parts of the US financial system. Uh, even though the consumer still looks relatively healthy, uh, because, partly because you know their their fixed rate borrowing costs haven't gone up that much, and it doesn't really matter that much because they're fixed. It's only new borrowers that that feel that marginal uh, pressure from higher rates. A lot of people in the US haven't experienced any rise in borrowing costs on their mortgages because they're locked in. But there are other parts of the economy, including the banks themselves, that are quite exposed to that short rate going up. That's called is causing pressures. So that's a risk for the US economy. And I just think fundamentally, even though the US consumer is less geared, I just think the US consumer is inherently vulnerable. It's just a lot of people in the US who, who, who have pretty ordinary looking balance sheets who run off the back of credit, don't really have any savings. Um, so there's always that sort of cohort in the US that are inherently vulnerable and any rise in unemployment could, could hit them quite hard. So I'm not really bearish on the US economy, but I still think Australia is in relatively better shape. So I think our recession risk is elevated compared to a, a typical year, uh, but still pretty low, whereas I think the US is it's, it's more finely balanced. So that's concerns with America and the US. Let's go back and zoom in on, on Australia again. Are there any particular areas of the economy in Australia that you're concerned about right now? Yes, well, with, with the high levels of household gearing, there there is, I think, inherently some degree of sort of tail risk in the in the household sector. I, I don't think the risks of any sort of bad debt or mortgage default problem in, in Australia is particularly high. But I do think what will happen as rates continue to edge up, or more people are exposed to these higher interest rates as, as sort of the fixed rate lending buffer rolls off. I think people will do what they need to do to keep repaying their mortgages. So I think big boom area of recent years has been you know, retail spending, particularly goods, spending on goods. Um, so I think you know, retail spending will continue to weaken uh, as people preference paying off their mortgages over spending on, on, on goods. So I still think services um, has a bit of catch up, but I think that will also slow, but, but I think slow gradually. But certainly I think, you know, we're pretty cautious as we wrote in a, in a piece uh, last week um, on, on goods retailers. You've started to see a bit of pain emerge in that sector and, and certainly share prices are starting to discount a, a weaker future, but I, th- I still think there's more to go in that, in that, um, that cycle. So we're, we're pretty cautious towards um, re- retailers right at the moment. Considering these concerns, is the market in Australia pricing in any any rate cuts just yet? Yeah, in terms of the money market, it is, uh, although it's fairly uh, distant. So when you look at the, the money market, and we're, we're sort of May 30, 31 at the moment, um, market's starting to toy with rate cuts in about a year from now. So it's still a fair way off. The market's still most recently of the view that we'll probably get one more rate rise somewhere over the next two or three months. Um, I personally think the RBA has done enough, but the market seems to have come back to the view that there might be one more to come 
Then around about April next year, April, May, the market start, started partially pricing a rate cut. At this point, the market's only got a couple of rate cuts sort of uh, mid to second half of next calendar year. But yeah, the market does have rate cuts coming, but they're, they're further off than what the market's pricing in, in, in the US at the moment for, for comparison. So David, we've covered a lot of ground in, in a short period with this episode. Just how would you summarise the investment outlook right now? It's an unavoidable comment that the environment is uncertain. Uncertainty is elevated. There's always uncertainty in financial markets, but I've been doing this for a long while now, Ted, and I think you're in a period of elevated uncertainty. I would distinguish that from jumping to conclusion that the outlook is dismal or bearish. I think we're relatively neutral in terms of how we're positioned both in equities and bonds versus our long-term strategic allocation. So we're not uh, overtly bearish, but we are cognizant that there are plausible scenarios both to the upside and the downside. I think if if you read the financial press, um, you probably get more airtime for the the downside scenarios. Um, And I think those scenarios are certainly plausible and, and worth monitoring pretty closely in terms of recession risk, sticky inflation, banking stresses in the US, all that sort of thing. So we're watching all that pretty closely. Uh, and I give a decent probability to, to those sort of things becoming a problem over the next year. But conversely, the US economy, Australian economy continue to show surprising resilience. And I think that's noteworthy. We can't dismiss that. So I think slowdown both here and in the US almost certainly, but possibility or probability that that resilience continues to come through is not an implausible scenario. And I also think that, particularly in the case of the US, it's quite plausible that inflation does come off at a surprisingly rapid pace over the next six to 12 months. That might not be a one-month story, but I can see a lot of leading indicators that suggest that over the next six to 12 months, we could get, a, you know, at least cyclically, quite a pleasant surprise on inflation. Um, and if we get a slower economy, but not a terrible economy, that's not really a bad scenario for markets. And I don't think the market's positioned for that, really. Yeah, it's a complex uh, situation. As I said, uncertainty is elevated, but I think I can see risk both ways at the moment. Hence, you know, we're, we're pretty neutrally positioned and, and watching the data pretty closely. Okay, it's been a fascinating discussion. We might wrap it up there. As always, David, thank you very much for coming on the show again. Thanks, Ted. Um, Great to be here. Okay, if you missed our previous episode with Sam Catalano discussing investing in lithium, then I suggest you check that out in the back catalogue as it was one of our most popular episodes so far. And I can see that ratings have been coming through for the podcast too. So thanks to those listeners that have rated the show. We really appreciate it. Next episode, I'll be speaking with Stephen Arnold from Aorus about his portfolios and what he's been seeing in the market. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you're listening, if you haven't already, to ensure that you receive that episode when it's released. We'll wrap it up there. My name's Ted Richards, and see you next time on the Invest at Best podcast. This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision. 
past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.